0: The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Rona Novick will now present her lecture, Recipe for Resilience, Bouncing Back, Moving Forward. Welcome everybody, I'm Rona Novick. I am a clinical psychologist and have the pleasure to serve as the dean of the Azrieli Graduate School of Jewish Education and Administration at Yeshiva University. And just a little bit of background and context about the notion of resilience. I've been a clinical psychologist since, I'm not gonna tell you how long, or you'll do the math and know how old I am. The field of clinical psychology originally began as a way to study and treat disease, to work with the mentally ill. And about two and a half, three decades ago, a group of psychologists studying children and adolescents who came from some of the worst homes and the worst neighborhoods, but still thrived and did well, said maybe we've got it all wrong. The field of psychology is studying the people who are ill. Maybe we should study those, I'll see if I need it, thank you. Maybe we should study those individuals who despite all of life's challenges and difficulties actually not only survive but thrive. And so the notion of resilience and how do we learn, what can we learn, how can we become resilient ourselves by looking at responses to difficulty, to challenge and to stress and think about how we move ahead. And I'm happy to say that in the past decades, the field of positive psychology, and in particular, the study of resilience, has broadened and is now in every sector of our world. We're studying in the military, we're studying in schools, we're studying in nursing homes. How do we build this concept, this wonderful human ability called resilience? Uh, today, I want to give you a recipe for resilience. It's no accident that it's, I'm going to talk about the CDC, but not the Center for Disease Control. The CDC meaning the context, thinking about where we've been, where we are now, and what the road ahead looks like as best as we can predict the definition, what is resilience, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and then contributors, where does resilience come from? Is it something that you're born with or that you can grow? And then we're gonna look at three different pathways or routes to resilience, and I, I have no mental capacity if I don't have an acronym, so that's my ABC, the anatomical, the behavioral, and the cognitive. And we'll unpack, And some, on some of the slides you'll see a little anatomical skeleton, meaning that's the anatomical root, the behavioral, the guy running, and the mental, the cognitive. We'll look at that. Let's think first about the context, about what we have all been through, what we may have thought two months ago we were done with, and what the events of the current days and weeks have reminded us is still very much part of our reality. We have had to, in the past 18 months, it's so good to be in a room together with people, right? Am I right? We've had to entertain ourselves. We have had to become educators, those of us who are parents. Uh, We've had to operate home offices, become chefs and short order cooks. We've figured out how to connect, even from a distance, how to manage with less, how to multitask and do more. You should see what my dining room table can become. It's no longer just a place for Shabbat meals. It's amazing how much can happen on that table. And we have risen to many extraordinary challenges. But our new, I refuse to call it the new normal. I refuse, I am holding out for the fact that at some point we will get to a new normal. We are in our new not normal. We are in yet another iteration of what is unusual and strange. And it is marked by continued uncertainty. As much as we have learned in 18 months about ourselves, about illness, about you know, governments, travel, et cetera, there's still much that we do not know. What is unknown includes both how long this is going to go on and the intensity that we're going to deal with. And if we had either of those to deal with, that would, you know, that would be enough but we have both of them to deal with, that we're dealing with a reality that will exist for we don't know how long, and we don't know how severe or uneven this reality will be. And our context means that this is not in our heads. This has real life impacts. How many of you in the past 18 months have had your ability to visit with family curtailed? Right. you know, uh, we, you know in, our, in our neighborhood, we would look on with unbelievable happiness and jealousy at those people who said, the pandemic is wonderful. Our kids were stuck with us. You know, wow. we got them. We got to be together for six glorious months. We have children all over the globe, and we were not able to see children and grandchildren for many, many months. So does real life impacts people whose jobs have changed and whose lives have very, uh, changed in a very real way? If we think about a, a Jewish lens, the context that we bring to resilience and our consideration of resilience, how does the Jewish mindset, the Jewish ethos, consider this concept of bouncing back and moving forward? It starts, what's the first thing we say in the morning? Moda ani. We basically every single morning say, Thank you, God, you gave me another day, a new one. Everywhere we're entering, we're in Elul, we hear, heard the chauffeur blow, we are entering the time of the period of tshuva where we recognize in a formal way, as individuals and as a community, that we get endless do-overs. We get to push the restart button and move forward, to some extent regardless of what has happened in the year that's passed. At the same time, as much as as Jews, we believe in the power of faith and belief, we are never permitted to simply sit and do nothing and say, okay, God fix me, God fix the world. Very much part of the Jewish ethos and our understanding of ourselves and our world is we have to believe and we have to give ourselves to faith in God but that doesn't mean we don't do our part of the bargain. So we have to balance faith and action all the time. And the last piece that we have to consider when we consider resilience is how blessed we are as Jews to live within a community. Wherever you go in the world, tell me you don't do this. You look for the Jews. You see, there's a guy with a yarmulke, there's a woman who's dressed, I think that person's Jewish. We are part of a worldwide network. Chabad does this better than anyone. But whether you're Chabad or not, we know we are part of a global family. A recent study by the Orthodox Union, I was reading it on the plane coming, of four uh, Orthodox communities during the pandemic, one of which was Atlanta, one of which was my own community of West Hempstead, Long Island, Scarsdale, and Dallas, North Dallas. They studied four communities longitudinally over the pandemic. And what they found, given these are affluent communities, given these are communities with strong Jewish communal agencies and agents, but what they found was that individuals fared better than the world, despite having at least as high COVID incidence rates. Faith and community made a difference in how people handled the challenges. So now let's move to definition. What is this thing called resilience? This is the American Psychological Association's Road to Resilience, which is their large publication. This is their definition. It's the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. And it goes on to say, it's that ineffable quality that allows some people to be knocked down by life and come back stronger than ever. Rather than letting failure overcome them and drain them, they find a way to rise from the ashes. Even after misfortune, resilient people are blessed with such an outlook that they are able to change course and soldier on. And I always put this picture when I talk about resilience of palm trees in a hurricane. And the reason I put that picture is because I come from the Northeast. We don't have palm trees. We have mighty oaks. You know what happens to mighty oaks in a hurricane? They're strong, and they're stiff, and they're rooted with big roots that go through the ground. And a wind comes along, and they snap in half. And if you're not lucky, they take your house or your car with them. They tumble. Their rigidity does not serve them well in a storm. Palm trees bend. They sway in the wind, and when the wind stops, they greet the sun again. So my metaphor for resilience is, we have to be flexible palm trees. We can't be rigid um, oaks. There's actually been a debate about that definition among psychologists and, and clinicians and people who work with individuals about Is it fair to say resilience is bouncing forward rather than bouncing back? Isn't it enough after, God forbid, we shouldn't know from it, I lose a loved one, that I get back to functioning okay? Isn't it enough that after I lose my job, I'm able to regroup and do all right? Why do I have to be a better person after the crisis than before? But it turns out that one of the reasons that people consider The notion of moving forward after crisis is that trauma, crisis, and challenge loosen us up and that very often they provide fertile soil for change. In a way, when it before the challenge and crisis, we were stuck. And so whether you consider it bouncing back or bouncing forward, and right now I think that we are all being asked to move forward while the world is going a little bit backwards. And that's the particular challenge right now that if we think of where we were three months ago, we were all great, oh my gosh, rates are low, COVID is behind us, and now we're back with, oh, they're not so low anymore. Are we going backwards? But we have to move forward in our lives. It's a particular challenge. So now let's think about where do we get resilience? Where does it come from? Well, part of it, some of us are blessed being born more flexible, more willing to take on newness and challenge. And that's, there are eight temperamental factors that have been identified that come pre-wired at birth. They're not immutable. So if your temperament, for example, is that you are a more shy person, you don't like meeting new people, being in crowds, you can push yourself. But your natural preset is always going to be, I kind of prefer to be by myself. If your temperament is, I don't like risk-taking, I don't like danger, I don't like newness, you can push yourself. But it's going to be harder for you to be the kind of person who deals with a world changed by a trauma or, or newness. So some of it is innate and inborn, and they're definitely, any of you who have parented more than one child know that they come markedly different from the day that they're born. There are the children in the nursery who, when they're tired and hungry, sound like this. (laughs) And then there are the ones that are screaming so loud, that they're waking up the whole ward. That's temperament. There are some children who have unbelievable tolerance for pain and distress, and others, The the slightest little thing bothers them, and they're terribly upset. So some of our capacity for resilience comes from our inborn temperament. But luckily, that's not the only source of resilience. It turns out that our experiences can also contribute to our resilience. And we saw an unbelievable presentation at breakfast about um, those who serve us in our military forces. I'll give you examples in a moment that come from research in the military about how we can build resilience. We also develop resilience from examples and role models that we see, from watching how others deal with challenge and copying them. And there is, again, an entire body of psychological research and literature looking at the power of what is called observational learning that much of what we learn in life comes indirectly by just watching others. And not even on a conscious level, but basically saying, well that worked well for that person, let me try it out. And finally, there are learned behaviors. There are ways that we can actually learn to be resilient. And we're gonna go over each of these in a moment. I talked about temperament now, resilience coming from experience. There, again, body of research that is documented that stress and challenge can actually serve as a strengthener. The research in the military is done on paratroopers. When they um, do parachute jumps, we ch- um, can uh, test their uh, various response systems that measure their anxiety level. And not surprisingly, on your first parachute jump, you have extraordinarily high levels of anxiety. If it were me, off the charts. On the second one, it's decreased. By the third one, it's way down. By the fourth and fifth, it's almost immeasurable. The stress strengthens. Now, of course, the only way that that works is if you do the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jumps. If you're, I'm sorry? And they go, well, if, if you're a super anxious person of heights and you don't like airplanes, you, you're never going to have that stress, stress as a strengthener experience. But using a more normative um, research, children who need to be hospitalized, even for fairly routine surgeries, hernias, ear tubes, tonsillectomies, do much better. If they had early separations, they stayed with grandma, while mom and dad were at a wedding, they stayed at a friend's house, they had a sleepover, they do better with the separation that is necessary during hospitalization if they had an early, and you're right, positive, successful experience before. The important message, by the way, to parents here is that if you want to raise children who are strong and resilient, you can't do it by sheltering them from every last trauma, stress, and tragedy. They need sometimes to scrape their knees and to get boo-boos and survive it to be stronger the next time it happens. How is it that for some people, jumping out of an airplane is only gonna make us more terrified of airplanes, and for others, meaning it leads to being sensitized to the trauma, and others, it leads to desensitizing or stealing effects and being resilient. It turns out that what is the key is whether I have a successful coping strategy, whether during my parachute jump or during my hospitalization. Um, The the example doesn't work for both. I was gonna say, mom and dad, give me a stuffed animal to keep me safe. I don't think you're taking that on your parachute jump. So on on the way down, you're saying, I got this, I can do this. You have coping mechanisms. We also, by the way, have built-in physiological mechanisms of adaptation. The human body cannot stay at high levels of anxiety for more than 90 minutes at a time. Our anxiety engine actually runs out. The fuel for worry and high levels of stress run out. So if you're in a situation long enough, you will adapt. I'm listening for it. There is a very slight hum in this room. Right, you hear it? Right, it's from the light, yeah. But if I didn't point out to you, you wouldn't notice it, because physiologically, our bodies, our hearing, our mind, it's already adapted to it and has tuned it out. That's the process of physiological adaptation. We get used to things, and it's amazing how much we can tolerate. You know, there's always that story of if you put a frog in a beaker of boiling water, of course, the frog will die, but if you put a frog in a beaker of water and you slowly turn up the... The heat, the frog has no idea what's happening because it adapts to the slow changes. Um, Psychological habituation is not what our body gets used to, it's what our mind gets used to. And so as many, I I happen to be... um, I'm, I'm not good about giving blood. I'm fine with shots and needles, but not with in-the-vein blood things. The first time I ever had a, a blood test, I did one of these, you know, like fall on the four faints. The second time I gave blood, I was in college, and I had low blood pressure. It wasn't easy for them to get a vein, but they did. Afterwards, I needed smelling salts to revive me, and at the end of the the um, the a process. They sent me on the way, and I went, I went to a small college. I came back a month later to give blood again, and the nurse said, why are you here? You're like the worst donor ever. And I said, I want to get over my psychological fear. I want to habituate and get rid of my psychological symptoms that I have when I give blood. And she said, oh, honey, it's not psychological in your case. Please don't come anymore. Um, But we do have something called psychological habituation, where we can get used to, over time, difficult, challenging, annoying situations, and mentally we become, I don't want to say immune, but it becomes tamped down. We also can deal with our... We, we have stealing effects when we find a way to redefine the experience mentally. So jumping out of the airplane or going to the hospital, I was a strong person. Look at what I accomplished. I pushed par- past my fears. I was a big girl. I s- stayed all by myself. If our cognitive wrapping of the experience makes it adaptive and positive, then it's gonna to contribute to the event as part of our resilience um, uh, suitcase. And finally, this concept, which was developed in the 60s by Albert Bandura, it's not self-esteem. Self-esteem is how I feel about myself. It's something called self-efficacy, and that's my belief in my ability. If I'm on that airplane and I believe I can do this, I'm well-trained, I'm well prepared, I've packed my parachute, I'm ready to go, then I have self-efficacy. And this experience is going to contribute to resilience. If I'm up there saying, I'm a loser, nothing good can come of this, then it's not going to contribute as a stealing event. What do we put into our recipe for resilience? Before I go to the specifics, some cautions. We have to know where we are in our resilience uh, recipe cooking journey and be forgiving. If things don't work the first time, try them another time and another time. If I talked about the, the importance of modeling and copying others, you can look at someone and say, how come he's able to do that without a worry and a care, and I'm still struggling? We have to be very careful that we not try to put ourselves in everyone's shoes and allow ourselves the time to get from where we are to where we wanna be. It's giving ourselves permission to be human and recognizing that many of the things I'm gonna talk about now require skill development and learning. And I used the example last night of driving a car. How many drivers in the room? How many people drive? If I asked you, what are the first three things you do when you get in your car to drive. How do you start a car and drive? You'd have to think about it. Because it's so overlearned, ingrained, and normal. It wasn't that way the first time you got in the car. First time you got in the car, you were telling yourself, hands at six and and 10, foot on the brake, now I turn the gas, now I do this. You had to talk yourself through the whole thing because it was new. Some of the skills I'm gonna share with you now will feel new, learning them, Takes time and practice. If you invest the time and practice, they can become as natural to you as your driving is, or reading or writing, things that you do that are overlearned and that have what's called automaticity. When skills have automaticity, they don't take a lot of brain space. You do them naturally. As we talk about skills, think for a moment when you get nervous, when you get anxious, when you feel stressed. Where do you feel it in your body? What do you feel? And I'm gonna invite you. Audience participation. If you're not embarrassed, call out. Stomach, Stomach. chest, Chest. back, Back. Back. neck, heart, heart pounding, in your shoulders, fantastic. You know, every time I do this, I get every body part and every system from muscles to cardiovascular to digestive um, there is, by the way, genetic loading. If you want to do something just interesting, ask your parents, your siblings, where they feel stress. Jews, by the way, like Italians, tend to be gut and cardio worriers. We get agita, we get heartburn, stomach distress, and we get cardiovascular system. Brits and Germans get more musculoskeletal systems: backache, headaches, neck aches. You know those, that stiff German and British. It, it actually does run in, in genetics and in families, realize that we are both controlled by and we control our physiology. Of course, if I have a stomach ache, if I'm feeling butterflies in my stomach, that's gonna impact my behavior. But I also have impact on those butterflies in my stomach. I also decide whether I you know, take a Tums or work through it or jump out the airplane and then next time I don't have the butterflies. So it's, it's, a, it's a cycle that we can intervene at any point in time. And even the most physical of physiology phenomena, like blood pressure, like, like um, migraines, believe it or not, there are behaviors and strategies that we can use that are going to change and impact that physiology. But for each one of us, it's a little journey of self-exploration. What works for you? When you are feeling stressed, what takes you to a calmer or better place? For some people, it's music, reading, writing. It's doing something artistic. It might be talking to someone. It might be getting fresh air. Um, It might be exercise or distraction. What was that? Washing dishes, come to my house. If that de-stresses you, I have a kitchen just waiting for you. Um, Think about many of these strategies are things we do in the moment, but are there strategies that help you manage stress that you use on a regular basis, like meditation, yoga, exercise, breathing, all of which are learnable and teachable approaches? which we'll, we'll get to some of them today. But before learnable and teachable approaches, we have to remember that we, we can impact our physiology directly as biological entities with some very basic things like how many hours did you sleep last night? Bad question. Bad question. <laughs> and I love being the speaker right after breakfast, And what are we eating? What are we putting in our bodies that is helping contribute to stress management or, you know, how many caffeine cups have you had today? And if you've had too many, you're not going to be de-stressed. You might be wide awake, but you're going to be a little bit jittery and edgy from too much caffeine. Yeah. Thank you. And there's increasing research about exactly that, that it's not just quantity, it's quality of sleep. And there's a huge body of work now, and all of these apps that are made now for phones to help you create better sleep hygiene to sleep not only longer, but better, there are people making special beds that notice if you're moving around too much and the bed changes its um, positioning or its warmth, you know, who knows, all kinds of um, inventions that are are meant to help us. But other than sleep and nutrition, we can also impact indirectly through exercise, relaxation, imagery, and meditation and mindfulness, which I hope to get um, a chance to deal with a little bit um, later on today. In terms of, yes, sure. Um, all of these techniques, relaxation, imagery, meditation, are all ways to calm the mind. There are um, multiple types of imagery, but relaxing imagery is basically. Using your mind, creating a picture in your mind, and I I hope to have time to actually do it with you today and leave you very relaxed. Um, Using a picture in your mind to create an experience of relaxation. Okay? Um, But it's just using mental pictures. In terms of behavior and resilience, how do we behave in ways that build our resilience? We know that as a species we are pre-wired for fight or flight response. That in very high stress situations, it's either I'm gonna go forward and I'm gonna take care of this or I'm gonna run for the hills. And all of us, by the way, know people. We know people who live this. We know the people who in a crisis, whatever the crisis is, okay, I'm on it. I've ordered the food, I've taken care of that. I've got chairs set up for you, I have to do it. And we know other people who are like, uh, and they don't know what to do. And that's the equivalent of fight or flight. The natural human response to things that scare or stress us is to avoid them. I'm not going on that plane. I don't want to be in the hospital overnight, so I'm not going to go talk to doctors. I'm not going to see anybody. That avoidance makes us less resilient. Because the more we avoid that which stresses us, mentally, the bigger that stress gets in our head. It just becomes a bigger mountain to climb. And so we want to, as, whenever possible, avoid avoidance and push ourselves to take steps always forward. We want to approach in a coping way. I don't have to. If I don't like, um, uh, if I don't like swimming and being in the water, I don't have to dive into the deep end. But, but I can dangle my feet by the steps until that feels comfortable. And then I could stand in the shallow part of the pool. And then maybe I could swim a lap in the, in the deep part, but I don't have to start. When I mean to push ourselves, I don't mean you have to jump out the airplane or dive into the deep end of the pool. One thing that I want to s- mention about resilience is the impact of the ever-present news media that follows us on our computers, on our phones, in our, you know, it's just everywhere. The, yes. Yes. It, it makes me crazy that, first of all, now everything is breaking news. And the breaking news is we have a new sportscaster. I don't, that to me, that's not breaking news. Not only that, but watch the graphics on news today. It's, there's a, a trailer on the bottom. There's a starburst on the top right-hand side. There's 14 different graphics saying breaking news, next story up. It's all sensationalized, and it's all meant to raise your blood pressure. All of it does. So you it's a little bit like you know Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You have to find the media amount that's just right for you. Not too little. You don't want to be uninformed. But not so much that you stop being resilient because you are frozen by the ever-present um, sense of doom that the media brings us. Um, if, if you are raising children, keep in mind that you have to think about their right dosage also, and how much is the right amount for them. Um, so you have to monitor, and monitor even your discussions with others. Sometimes you have to say to friends, I, I'm, not, I'm not good with this. I can't talk about it, it, gets me, it just gets me too upset. In my house, I said this last night, after 10 o'clock at night, no news, and we don't talk finances or family. Because if we do, I don't sleep. So that, it's, we can talk about that any other time of day, but not when I need to you know, close down and be calm for sleep. Part of our recipe for resilience has to include social elements. We need other people in our lives, and even when they can't be physically in the room with us, we need to find ways to engage socially. It could be on Zoom, it could be on phone calls, it could be on social media. We need both casual contacts and interactions, you know, just seeing what's doing with friends on social media or on a WhatsApp chat, but we also need deep and meaningful friendships. We don't need to be the most popular person in the world, and we don't need hundreds of friendships. I think somebody once, one, uh, some social science researcher wrote about the fact that, you know, on Facebook, people say, this person has 8,742 friends. That I, and some researcher found that the, actually the human capacity for friends, for true friends, is nowhere near that number. You can't have 8,000 friends. You can maybe have 10, maybe 15. The reality is you need two. You really need two good friends in life. One is a backup. It's not good to just have one friend, so you need one as a backup. And friends are life's stress busters. They're inoculators. They're like a suit of armor that helps you get through life's challenges, to have friends in your life. Research suggests that friendships keep us healthier and help us live longer. So if you don't have friends, meet somebody at JLI. Make a friend while you're here. Um, What's the recipe for changing behavior? So I've already talked about we have to make approach approachable and take small steps. We want to start with the easiest and build on success. If I want to um, get be more social, I'm not going to start with okay. I'll invite 17 people over for dinner, and you know I'll I'll have to look at them and talk with them for 12 hours. Easier to say let's go to a movie or let's go bowling or let's you know go to a store together for 20 minutes, or go have a coffee with one person, make it easy. Um, Encourage yourself to move beyond your comfort zone, to just take a little step beyond what I've done before and what's okay, but predict, allow, and encourage failure. Failure is a very critical part of our growth. We don't learn without making mistakes, and we need not only permission to make mistakes, we need to make mistake-making a good thing. It's good, because that's, that's how you learn. When I was teaching our youngest son to ride, um, to ride a bicycle, not the most willing athletic participant, but we live in suburbia where you have to learn to ride a bike. And he did not like failure. So the first time he fell off the bike, it was very clear. Bikes are stupid. I'm never going to ride a bike again. And I just had this, this moment of unbelievable mommy or psychology brilliance where I said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I made a terrible mistake. I forgot to tell you that the proprioceptive centers of the brain need you to fall you see the neurons are connecting through the corpus callosum. And I'm talking like fancy, fancy gobbledygook. And from here to the corner, which is about here to the door, you need to fall at least four times. So the proprioceptive management system learns how to balance on the bicycle. And he looked at me like I was a crazy person, and he said, four times? I said, all right, if you fall only three, it will be okay. And from then on, every time he fell, he said, was that good? Did I fall good? And I said, brilliant. That was brilliant falling. And he became a bike rider in a short period of time. But it taught me that mistakes are not a sidebar to learning. Mistakes are a critical part of learning that need to be celebrated as an integral part. Yeah, well, sometimes it just happens. The mommy, you know, the Hashem just lightning hits the mommy center of the brain, and you just get it. Um, OK. How do we deal with our cognition, our mental um, uh, system and resilience? We have to see ourselves and the world as the um, blue box, not the gray box. We have to get rid of notions that say things are inevitable and unchangeable, are uncontrollable, are negative and dangerous, are forever and static. And we have to shift to an understanding of ourselves as effective and capable, of, uh, to see ourselves as works in progress, to be forgiving of ourselves rather than judgmental, and to adopt what's called a growth mindset that has been found to be incredibly contributory in all elements of life success. I see people are taking notes. If you don't have, there are copies of all the slides. There are handouts up front and in the back if people need copies. I'm sorry that I didn't think to say earlier. So if you need, you'll have copies of this when you leave. Overall resilient life views are ones that celebrate movement towards goals, even when it's small movement, that are able to say, you know, I was able to walk around the block today, maybe tomorrow I'll do two times around the block. I was able to get together with friends today for the first time, maybe tomorrow or next week, I'll be able to do it again and it will feel more natural. Seeing crises as a challenge rather than an unsurmountable um, mountain. we can't be together at JLI without acknowledging the role of faith, that how blessed we are to be in a tradition that grounds us, that gives us meaning and purpose in our lives and in our communities, and that helps us see even the worst crises as part of a larger plan, part of an unfolding that we may not be able to understand, but that we can look for what's our role, what is the message to me. What could I be doing better? In terms of dealing with our non-resilient thinking, and I spoke extensively about this last night, but here's the quick and dirty approach to when you have non-resilient thinking, I can't do it, this is too hard, Um, this makes me very nervous, I can't handle it, we have to ask ourselves two really important questions about negative worrying. Um, thoughts that keep us stuck. And the first question, is it true? Is it real? Is this a valid point of view? And sometimes the answer to that is yes. I am scared of this. This does make me insanely nervous. Then I have to move to the next question. And that is, is it helpful? Is giving this thought primary space in the very limited real estate of my brain? Is it helping me? Is it moving me forward, or is it keeping me stuck? And if the answer to that question is no, it is not helping me, this is not good for me, then we have to do mental housekeeping and think about how do I shift my thinking? How do I move from a thought that is keeping me stuck to one that might help me be resilient and move forward? If I'm going to cook up resilience the Jewish way, I'm going to make sure that, in addition to all the psychology we've talked about, that I also includes the, the the unbelievable power of spirituality, whether your spirituality includes prayer or simply recognizing the holiness, the kedusha, in everyday events, being having a capacity for awe. In the psychological literature, spirituality is discussed now extensively. I also find this amazing. When I was in graduate school in, I won't tell you when, what year, um, my, my Jewish professors, by the way, but non-religious, told me that they'd be happy to cure me of my archaic beliefs and help me be a healthier individual. Fast forward decades, and I'm giving grand rounds at medical facilities on the role of spirituality in healing your patients. We have come a long way, baby. We now, science recognizes what our forefathers knew what our torah tells us and that's that a spiritual life is a rich life it's a life that that offers unbelievable opportunities for health and for growth and there's now psychological study after study after study documenting that spiritual people do better the studies in the pandemic of these jewish communities is yet another piece of evidence that feeling part of a spiritual community and a spiritual lifestyle is helpful in dealing with crisis. Part of that is the process of what's called meaning making. It's that if you ask a Jew, why are you here on this planet, we have an answer. Our Jewish traditions tell us why we're here. Whether your answer is to serve God, whether your answer is tikkun olam, to correct the world, to be a light unto the nations, whichever one of the Jewish answers you give, there are Jewish answers that say, you we have a purpose, my life has meaning, and even in a moment of crisis and stress, there are things that I can do that will have meaning. What's my job when we go to a mourner's house? We all know what our job is. It's called being menachem avel, to comfort The mourner. I have purpose and meaning in that moment. And finally, generosity. The Jewish tradition of generosity, of giving, and particularly of giving thanks, also makes us resilient. It turns out that when we give, we get. That generosity is another stealing capacity. It makes us stronger. I think I've said most things here. Um, routines, rituals, he was giving me a a time warning, so I want to be sure that I get to giving you imagery and leaving you all totally and utterly relaxed. So, you know, we say at the close of every reading of a book of Torah Chazak, Chazak v'nitchazek, we should be strong and we should be strengthened. So with that, before I open to questions, let me share with you an example of relaxing imagery for this to work, you need to close your eyes. So trust the people next to you. Nobody's going to take your things. No Everybody. I'm closing my eyes also. I'm not looking at you. Close your eyes. And I want you, as best as you can, to just focus on the sound of my voice and imagine the following scene. I want you to imagine that you are walking onto an empty beach. You see the ocean in the distance, and you can hear the waves gently coming onto the beach. You take off your shoes and socks, and the sand is wonderful. It feels hot on the surface where the sun has baked it, but as soon as your toes go into the sand, you can feel a coolness underneath. You walk towards the water. You hear seagulls overhead. They're not too loud, but you can hear them calling to each other. You take in a deep breath, and you, have, you get that smell of ocean, a little seaweedy smell. Imagine that you're laying out a towel, and you sit down on your towel in the sand. You stretch out your legs, and you lay back. Above you, the sky is blue, some puffy white clouds drifting by. Every time a cloud goes over the sun, your skin gets a little cool. It's breezy. But then the cloud moves, the sun comes out, and it bakes your skin. It just feels wonderful. You have an ice-cold bottle of water with you. You sit up, and you take a sip. It's got condensation on the outside, so your hands get wet when you touch it. But you sip it down, and the water is crisp and cold. You taste that really refreshing taste on your tongue. You swallow it, and you lay back down, Before you lay down, you notice out on the ocean a sailboat. It's got white sails with some blue markings on them. And it's bobbing in the the water. You lay back on your towel, alternating that feeling of the breeze and the sun. It just feels wonderful. And you lay there feeling totally comfortable and relaxed. And now slowly open your eyes. Oh, you were great. You all closed your eyes. Did you get to the beach? Yeah? Did it feel good? You're relaxed? The the power of relaxing, relaxing imagery, first of all, it's unique to each individual. You might not find a beach relaxing. For you, maybe it's a mountain or a forest glade. Um, you know, someone who's pale and burns easily, the beach might be the worst image. It's best to use a place you've actually been before. And if you noticed, If I was good, I think I got it. Your image should incorporate all five senses, what you tasted, smelled, saw, felt, and heard. Vivid imagery like that takes you literally out of where you are and to another place, and it's incredibly powerful and relaxing. Try it before you go to sleep at night. It's a wonderful way to kind of close out your day. There are many other forms of imagery, but that's what relaxing imagery looks like. I'll take comments and questions. Feel free to visit me at my blog and at my, um, at my website. I'm, I'm very, very excited. This is a resilience story. I wrote a, began writing a children's book after 9-11, which is now how many years ago? 20 years ago, and got a lot of no's from publishers. And finally, last year, on April Fool's Day, my first children's book, Mommy, Can You Stop the Rain, was published. I have it here for sale if people are interested in signed copies. I'm happy to do that for people. It's also available on Amazon. It is a book about how we deal with life's storms, um, written for children but with messages for parents as well. Thank you all so much. Any comments or questions? How do you help teenagers get there is the question. So everything that I've talked about works for teenagers. Many, many schools are now incorporating in their curriculum mindfulness and meditation. They're incorporating the teen mind is, you know, it's it's going a million miles an hour. It's dealing with, I, I always say, if I had to be an adolescent today, I wouldn't want to do it. It's, it's not, you wake up every morning, your body is different than it was the day before. You never know what you're gonna confront. Your social world is in upheaval constantly. It's really hard to deal with that. Um, helping teens recognize that they don't need to be perfect, that it is a process, and that there are skills that they can learn that are gonna help them through life. And I think schools are recognizing the need to incorporate this as much as reading, writing, and arithmetic more and more. Yes? Well, I think the imagery you gave was perfect for me because of knew it was That's what I did. I sat on my ferris and looked out at the ocean because I didn't want to. And um, so that was exactly what kept me going back and saying, thank you, God, because that's what the imagery was. And the other half is what happened in La Havre, New Zealand, because of a crash that we put to everything. Damage, unfortunately. Yes. We, you know, un- unfortunately, we have not, we, we have been challenged this year to find, you know, the silver linings in very gray clouds and to deal with what sometimes feels like, you know, talk about, you know, kick me when I'm down. I, I don't have a chance to catch my breath and to get up and another and another and another. Um, and, and yet we're here. We're here, and uh, you know, I. You, you looked at the beach. I said last night, I, I have I have two plants in my backyard that I visit daily, a tree that I raised from a sapling that is now much taller than I am that my children gave me, uh, which was a memento of a tree in my parents' yard, and I just go visit my magnolia every day and look at it. And another, another plant that, it's a bleeding heart plant, it's just an interesting plant, that I go and I look at, and, and uh, every day, it just gives me a little bit of comfort to see growth and health. Uh, So you you have to see what works for you and where you can find it. But I know we are out of time. We wanna make room for our next speaker. Thank you all so much. Enjoy, stay strong. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and torahcafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.